case information provided during this program includes details of violent criminal acts and may upset, shock, and offend some listeners. Any named suspects should be considered innocent unless proven guilty in a court of law. Michael Carmen was just 20 years old when he offered to work an extra shift at a gas station for another employee. When Michael Carmen arrived for his job for the overnight shift, little did he know that the events of that early morning would be tragic for him and would launch a global crime-fighting organization. The senseless, violent crime perpetrated against Michael would completely destroy his hopes, his dreams, his life. You are listening to True Crime Takedown, and I am your host, Troy Daniels. One of Michael Carmen's dreams was being a state trooper for the New Mexico State Police. He was a college student and was just a couple weeks away from getting married. He was working at a gas station, which was owned by the Horn Oil Company in Albuquerque, New Mexico, when he was offered the opportunity to work an extra shift since a coworker went on vacation. He definitely needed the money with all the expenses of getting married and going to school, so he agreed to work the shift. Michael showed up for work in his blue jeans and white t-shirt for that late night shift on July 24, 1976. It was still warm in the low 70s because it had been about 90 degrees earlier that day. He had his regular shift work as well as the extra shift, so he knew he had a long 16 hours ahead of him. It was shortly after 2 a.m. when Michael was found inside the gas station. He was horribly injured with a shotgun blast to his stomach, but he was still alive. He was rushed to the hospital for treatment. The uniformed Albuquerque police officers responded to the bloody scene. The detectives of the Albuquerque Violent Crime Unit were also paged out. 29-year-old Detective Greg McAleese had only been an officer for three years and had been promoted to detective about five months before. When the page went off, he knew where the gas station was because he lived only a couple miles from there. When Detective McAleese arrived, he made sure that the scene was secured. He directed patrol officers to also do a canvas to check around the gas station to see if there were any witnesses or if anyone heard anything. Lead Detective Joe Garcia showed up to the scene shortly afterwards. Detective Garcia told Detective McAleese that he will continue to coordinate the canvas of the area for witnesses and will make sure the scene gets processed by officers. He wanted Detective McAleese to go to the hospital to see if he can get any statement from Michael or secure any evidence from the victim. I spoke with former Detective McAleese and I asked him what he knew as he left the gas station and what he found out when he arrived at the hospital. Some people drove up to the gas station and for no real apparent reason, they robbed them and then shot them at point blank range with a shotgun. It was a contact wound to the abdomen, literally cut the poor kid in half. Michael was going in and out of consciousness. As you can just imagine, this was a devastating wound. As a matter of fact, later on in the autopsy, they found wadding from the round. 
that's how close the weapon was when it was discharged. He kept trying to say something to me. It was just unintelligible. I couldn't make out what he was trying to say. After clinging to life for uh, about two hours, he ended up expiring. It was heartbreaking. Here was this kid that had so much to look forward to, and in just a brief moment, his life was snuffed out. After Michael died of his injuries, Detective McAleese went back to the scene of what was now a murder and spoke with lead detective Garcia. I went back to the scene to find out what else Joe needed. At that time, uh, we had already done a survey. I, I need to describe a little bit where this gas station was located physically. It was on a corner, a heavily traveled corner, actually, on a Friday night. We had young people that were driving along Wyoming Boulevard, which was sort of a cruising pattern. There was a drag race area, a legal drag race area, about a mile away. A lot of kids were going to the drag races, and then they'd come over and get gas at the Horn Oil Station. There was a military base that was an army base that was about two miles away from the gas station to the south. So soldiers at that particular time of night, some soldiers would be coming back to the post. And at the same time, we had residential areas directly to the east and then a little further away to the west. But Joe had already had our uniformed officers canvas that residential area to the east, and nobody heard a single noise from the gas station, according to them. And yet you've got to figure that a shotgun in a very enclosed kind of area uh, where the murder occurred, you have to figure that the report of that shotgun had to have been exceptionally loud. And yet nobody seemed to have heard anything. The frustration level for us was exceptionally high. While he was at the gas station, he learned that the manager of the gas station had come in and counted the money that was left in the register and determined that approximately $130 had been taken by the robbers and several cartons of Marlboro cigarettes. That's what Michael's life was worth to whoever had walked into that gas station that night and killed him, $130 and some cigarettes. Detective McAleese was then assigned to make contact with Michael's mother, Carnelia Carmen, then age 62 years old, and let her know that her son would not be coming home that day. Michael lived uh, only a short distance from the gas station, only uh, about a mile away. So I went over to do a death notice. The minute that I showed up at the door, Mrs. Carmen knew that there was something wrong. And uh, she began to cry and, and wail. Uh, it became extremely difficult to communicate because of condition. But I was able to, to tell her uh, very briefly, without going into any detail, of course, but very briefly that Michael had been killed during a, a robbery. And so I wanted to find out if, what his, his background was, his work history at the gas station, anything that might be able to help us in our investigation. And that's when I found out that he was engaged to be married, that he was working a double shift that night. And there was one other thing that Mrs. Carmen told me. She said that Michael had always promised her that he would not resist if there was an armed robbery. He'd just give them the money. He said, Mom, he says, I'm not a hero. He had not resisted. There was no sign of a struggle at all. It would appear 
to us that he was killed just to eliminate him as a witness. That would indicate to me that there was a possibility that he might have known who the offenders were. That's just how you start to draw your conclusions together. Why would somebody just kill somebody so gruesomely and not have any indication that this kid had resisted the robbery? Before Detective McAleese left Michael's mother, he promised he would find the person who did this to her son. Over the next couple of weeks, the detectives looked over the evidence they had, and they also hoped a tip would come in from the public. Unfortunately, there was no significant evidence and no tips came in. In talking to Joe about this case, there were a lot of elements of solvability. We figured that someone had to have heard the blast of the shotgun. We figured that someone had to be driving up or down the street at the time of the robbery and might have seen a vehicle leave. We're grasping at straws. We did absolutely nothing to go on, no vehicle description or anything else. We just knew that Michael had been killed with a a shotgun blast, and that was about all we truly uh, knew. Over the course of, of two weeks in investigating it, we were absolutely no closer to being able to solve this case than we were the very first night. There was just nothing coming in. There was there was nothing, no calls to police or anything else. As time went on, there were several reports in Albuquerque of about five other robberies involving two black males in which one would wait in the car and the other would rob the employee with a shotgun. It was in one of these robberies that a witness described the vehicle that the armed robbers were in, which was a Plymouth Barracuda. Detectives McAleese and Garcia now had a solid lead to work with. They figured that most likely the men committing the armed robberies in the Plymouth Barracuda were the same duo that killed Michael Carmen, since the M.O. was so similar. As it turned out, Detective McAleese had been working on an idea since he had been promoted to detective about three months before that could just possibly solve this crime. I'd already been in conversation with the Chief uh, Bob Stover and his staff about setting up a reward program where people could call and, and remain confidential for about three months. Put the seed of an idea there. The whole idea for me was that in analyzing what it is that prevents most people from wanting to help police solve a case, most of the time it comes down to two major factors. And one of those is fear of retaliation from the criminal element. And the second part of this is just simple apathy. People just don't care. If a, if a crime doesn't really affect them, ordinarily they're happy to go about their everyday lives. And so I had pitched the idea to the chief about setting up this program, a reward program, where people could call and they could remain anonymous. If they remained anonymous, that would overcome their fear of retaliation from the criminals. The rewards, which would be nominal, would then overcome some of their apathy. The pressure to solve the case was building, so Detective Mackley spoke to Detective Garcia about using this idea of offering a reward to help get anonymous tips from the public for the murder of Michael Carmen. We were under a lot of pressure because we just were unable to produce any leads. 
my boss, Bob Iverson, was sort of looking at me and Joe and with a little bit of a puzzled look like, well, why can't you get going on this case? It was just the nature of the beast at the time. And, and so really in desperation, I talked to Joe about it and I said, you know what? What do you think about doing something really radical? And he said, what? And I said, how about if we go to a, a TV station and see if we can get them to film a reenactment of the crime? And he said, oh, God, he said, that's crazy. <laughs> he said, that is absolutely nuts. And I said, I'll tell you what. I said, let me let me give it a shot. And because I figured that if we were able to get this reenactment on the on the air, and then it would, first of all, draw attention to the case. And second of all, it would be something where we might find our casual witness. After his bosses and Detective Garcia signed off on the plan to do a reenactment of the murder, Detective MacLeese approached the largest TV news channel in that area to sell the idea. I went to uh, KOAT TV, which is an ABC affiliate, and they were the number one station in New Mexico. I mean, they're the thousand pound gorilla as far as ratings went. I talked to their general manager, who is a fellow by the name of, of Max Glower, and I described the murder and uh, what had happened and what I was seeking. And Max, <laughs> I was about halfway through all of this, and Max starts jumping up and down behind his desk. And I'm thinking to myself, my God, the guy. <laughs> The, the guy must either want to hurry me up and get me out of here or, you know, he might really be interested. And boy, was he interested. The very next day, he set up a meeting with the anchor of the evening newscast, plus the news director. And he said, I want to do this. He says, this is good TV and this is what TV is all about. It was decided that the reenactment would be filmed on September 3rd, with the airing occurring on September 8th during the 10 p.m. newscast. Detective McAleese then started to get everything ready to film the reenactment. What I had to do was to put together all of the details to make sure that this reenactment was as accurate as possible. I spent probably a good four days scouring the area to try to find out where there was a barracuda that would match the description of our supposed getaway vehicle. I mean, we were, we were drawing a lot of assumptions here that could have essentially led us down the wrong path. But I did find eventually, I did find a barracuda that uh, matched very closely the description of the getaway vehicle that had been seen in other gas station robberies. So I was able to go ahead and, and get the vehicle. It was at a used car dealership, and I got their permission to be able to use that vehicle for the reenactment. We went ahead and uh, got a shotgun out of property and evidence. I had the range master loaded up with uh, a couple of blanks so that we could create the reality of the blast of the shotgun for the viewing public. And then I arranged to get my actors we found a kid from the UNM drama department who agreed to play Michael Carmen. And then I went to the Job Corps and I got two kids from the Job Corps who matched the descriptions of the suspects in these other robberies. So I had my actors all lined up, all set to go. And then the day that we were to do the 
reenactment, everything that could go wrong went wrong. I called Ed Blacks the morning that we were going to do the reenactment, and the used car manager said, hey, he said, I'm sorry. He said, we sold the car. And he said, uh, it's probably on the way to Gallup, New Mexico right now. <laughs> so uh, all of a sudden, I mean, we're talking three reenactment is supposed to go on. <laughs> I don't bad now timing, have, bad timing. Uh, I don't have a getaway vehicle. And then on top of that, the actor who played the victim showed up on time. He was a very professional young man. But the two kids from the Job Corps who were to play my bad guys never showed up. So Detective McAleese made the best of it during the filming and used his AMC Matador unmarked car with the large whip antenna as the getaway vehicle, which looked nothing like the Plymouth Barracuda that the suspects had been committing their armed robberies in. Detective McLeese ended up being the getaway driver, and he recruited a lieutenant at the police department to be the gunman with the shotgun. Fortunately, the young man playing the victim, Michael Carmen, did show up. When the person playing the victim during the reenactment was shot with the blank shotgun round, the wadding came out so hot that it started the actor's shirt on fire. Thankfully, the flames were put out with some water with no injuries to the young man. In spite of everything that went wrong, the reenactment was filmed and ready to go for the newscast. The night of September 8, 1976 came, and the newscast started promptly at 10 p.m. Detective McAleese was at his desk with a single phone line, ready to take tips from the public as soon as the reenactment was played for the public, which happened around 10.18 p.m. As soon as the reenactment aired and the news anchor told the public that they could call 842-8000, and remain anonymous with the promise of a reward up to $1,000, the phone rang at his desk. The first caller hung up as soon as he answered it. The second caller did not want a reward, but wanted to give information on an unsolved gang sexual assault of a female. The caller stated that about a year ago, that a woman was sexually assaulted by three men, and the caller knew who had committed the crime. In June of 1975, a female had reported to police that her vehicle broke down, and three men offered to help her. They were unable to start her car and they offered to give her a ride to a gas station. Instead of going to a station, they took her to an isolated picnic and park beach where they sexually assaulted her. The caller felt terrible about failing to let police know who had done this horrible crime to this lone female. As soon as the caller heard on the news that it was possible to give a tip anonymously, the caller jumped on the phone and made the call. The caller gave the names, descriptions, and addresses on all three suspects. After ending that call, Detective McAleese continued to answer the phone. The phone continued to ring, and it continued to ring, and then I got the, the call. And he said, I just saw this reenactment on TV. He says, I was about a block away from the gas station. He said, and I heard of a real loud blast of sound, but he said, you know, he said it was July. He said, I figured that somebody just had some leftover firecrackers and we're letting them off. But he said, I saw a car, a gray car coming down the street in the, from the direction of, the, of that gas station. And he said, I know that car. He said, I've seen that car before. He said, that car belongs to somebody in the neighborhood. And I said, wow. I said, <laughs> I said I'll tell you what. <clears throat> I said, what are you doing now? 
He said, oh, he says, yeah, I'm, I'm home. I ain't doing nothing. I said, how about if you take a little walk around the neighborhood and see if you can find that car? And so I didn't think anything more of it. I had taken his information down. Uh, and about an hour later, just as I was getting ready to close up shop and turn the lights off, the phone rang again, and it was this guy. And he had found the car. And it was Whoa. located behind an apartment. This particular apartment was only about a mile and a half away from the gas station. That became, I think, really the critical part, being able to find a vehicle that matched up to the description of a of a vehicle that had been used in other gas station robberies where the offenders had used a shotgun in the commission of the crime. Uh, all of that really, really started to pull this case together quickly. Uh, and we went on over, uh, and, and I personally sat on that vehicle uh, until about 6 in the morning. And then <clears throat> we had our special operations unit, which was sort of like our SWAT team. Uh, we had a couple of officers from special operations come on over and, and sit on that car. Detective McLeish ran the plate on that car, and it came back to a 1969 Plymouth Barracuda belonging to Lawrence Tate. It was the first real possible suspect since the case began. After the Special Operations Unit started surveillance of the Plymouth Barracuda, Detective McLeish went home for a quick shower and then back to the department to work with Sergeant Bob Kuhn and Detective Carol Reynolds on the gang sexual assault tip that came in the night before. One of the three suspects had been arrested, so the detectives put that arrest picture in a photo lineup. They found a picture of the second suspect in a local high school yearbook. They then met with the victim, and she positively identified the two suspects as being the ones that sexually assaulted her. All three suspects were arrested, and all three suspects confessed to their part in the gang sexual assault. They were the first official arrest as a result of an anonymous Crime Stoppers tip, and they occurred when Crime Stoppers was just two days old. Back on the surveillance detail of the Plymouth Barracuda, things weren't going so well. The Special Operations Unit had been watching the car for over 24 hours, and it hadn't moved at all. It was Friday night, and the supervisor of the unit told Detective McLeese that they would only be able to do surveillance on the car for one more shift. About 20 minutes later, Detective McLeish received a call from the Special Operations Unit. They were following the Barracuda. Detective McLeish told them to stop the vehicle and get identification from all inside. By the time Detective McLeish showed up at the traffic stop, both men that were in the Barracuda had been arrested and officers had recovered a loaded 12-gauge shotgun that was laying in the back seat and wrapped in a blanket. The surveillance units had seen the men carrying out this shotgun wrapped in a blanket from one of the housing units nearby just before the vehicle was stopped. Both men were taken into custody and transferred to the police department. Both men refused to make a statement and asked for attorneys. Now that police had mugshots of both the alleged gunman and the getaway driver, they showed lineups to various clerks and other witnesses, with some of the victims and witnesses identifying either suspect. In addition, detectives served a search warrant at the apartment where both suspects had been staying. Detectives located clothing that matched the descriptions given by the victims, as well as a box of 12-gauge shotgun shells in a kitchen cupboard and several cartons of Marlboro cigarettes. 
There was enough evidence to charge the suspects with murder and armed robbery, and both went to trial. Unfortunately, when officers stopped the Barracuda, they went into the vehicle without having a warrant first, and this would end up keeping the prosecution from being able to use the shotgun as evidence against both suspects. Also, some victims and witnesses would not show up for trial. The alleged gunman had confessed that he killed Michael Carman to two felons, but apparently the jury didn't believe them or the eyewitness who had identified him as a shooter. In a shocking verdict to the detectives, the alleged gunman was acquitted. It is unknown whatever happened to the alleged gunman after this trial. The next day, Lawrence Tate went on trial by jury. In the end, Tate, the getaway driver and owner of the Plymouth Barracuda, was convicted and given two 10 to 50 year sentences for second degree murder. Tate went to prison. However, Tate was released from prison in August of 1982, just six years after Michael Carmen was murdered and four years after he went to prison for his murder. Remember earlier in the podcast when we talked about the gang sexual assault that was solved with a Crime Stopper tip? All three of those men arrested for the sexual assault were convicted and given sentences ranging from probation to six years in prison. Detective McAleese continued to build that first Crime Stoppers in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which included creating a nonprofit corporation with a civilian board of directors and getting donations for rewards. You see, Crime Stopper programs are governed by civilians in your communities and not by police officers. By the end of their first year in operation, the Albuquerque, New Mexico Crime Stoppers helped solve 298 crimes and recovered $300,000 in stolen property and paid out about $32,000 in rewards. Detective McAleese went on to lead state, national, and international organizations that assisted in creating local Crime Stopper programs throughout the United States and around the world. There have been over 1,500 local Crime Stopper programs globally in about 30 countries. They all have the three same basic parts, citizens, police, and media. Citizens from the community work with police to publicize unsolved crimes and wanted fugitives through the media and pay rewards for anonymous tips that lead to arrests. Anonymous tips to Crime Stoppers have led to more than one and a half million cases being solved and one million arrests. In addition, about $10 billion in narcotics have been seized and $2 billion in stolen property recovered. Crime Stoppers has paid more than $115 million in rewards to tipsters stunning numbers. For this podcast, I read the book titled Crime Stoppers, The Inside Story, written by Greg McLeese and Cal Miller. Cal is a retired journalist from the Toronto Star, Canada's largest newspaper, and he was a founding member of the Toronto Crime Stopper program. The book was just fascinating. With Cal Miller's background in news, he has been exposed to countless crime stories through the years. I asked him what impact Crime Stoppers has had in Canada. Cal's simple answer really is why Crime Stoppers is so important. There are cases that are solved through Crime Stoppers that could not be solved in any other way. Uh, we're solving everything from terrorism to uh, bicycle thefts. Uh, the gamut just is, is, is the wide range of, of uh, crime itself. I recently retired as a deputy police chief after 34 years in law enforcement, where most of my years were spent with or supervising the detective and SWAT units. The reason I wanted the story of the birth of Crime Stoppers to be my first podcast is because of how important Crime Stoppers has been in my career and in the investigation of violent crimes in my community. 
Crime Stoppers gives citizens the opportunity to provide information anonymously. Some people are just too fearful to talk. Police would never get critically important tips from those scared people if it were not for Crime Stoppers. I can tell you right now that there are thousands of detectives around the world that are hoping and praying that witnesses or those who know information about violent crimes would come forward and talk with them about what they know. Coming forward to police and giving your name and what you know is always the best way to give information. But if you do not believe that you can do that for whatever reason, please at least send in anonymous crime stopper tips pointing officers in the right direction. For more information, search the web for your local Crime Stoppers program in your area or country or CrimestoppersUSA.com in the United States. Please help us fight crime by joining the Takedown team through Patreon. You can join the team by going to TrueCrimeTakedown.com team. Our Patreon Takedown team gets exclusive episodes, video and audio extras, bonus content, and more. The entire interviews of Detective Greg McAleese and Cal Miller are available to our Patreon Takedown team. Pictures and sources for this podcast can be found on this episode page on our website, as well as how to purchase the book, Crime Stoppers, The Inside Story. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at True Crime Takedown. Our theme music, The Takedown, is by Mitch Marlowe. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with a new episode soon. True Crime Takedown is a production of Crime Fighters Media.